What's up, Fire Dogs? Before we get into the episode, I'd like to make a quick plug for our Facebook mentorship group called Fire Dog Mentorship. The group has over 600 members and offers them opportunities to become mentors and to seek mentorship. I can tell you that I've connected with two mentors since starting the group and they've offered me a lot of help. At the very least, I've made a couple friends that I can bounce ideas off of and ask for help in a variety of ways throughout my career. The group also has learning units, which is essentially a repository of documents, videos, and websites for firefighter learning and development. We're always looking to add to the collection. So if you have something that you think that would benefit the group, please don't hesitate to reach out to us, thefiredogpodcast at gmail.com. Send us what you got. If you want to join the group, go to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash firedog mentorship and click join to be a part of the experience. This is the Fire Dog Podcast. The views and opinions presented on today's episode are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or the United States Air Force. Welcome, my name is Matt Wilson. Thank you for joining us for episode 23 of the Fire Dog Podcast. Our guest today probably has his hands in more than anybody else in Air Force fire protection. He's the Fire and Emergency Services Operations and Fire Vehicle Program Manager and is involved with apparatus acquisitions, the Emergency Medical Services Program, and the Next Generation SCBA. He also represents the Air Force Fire Service on three NFPA committees. Please welcome Mr. Fred Tarrant. All right, Fred, well, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on the uh, podcast, joining us and sharing your insights on uh, what you're involved with in fire protection. I know there's a lot of listeners that are going to be interested to hear what you have to say. You uh, you mentioned to me the other day, there's a bunch of people emailing you all the time, asking questions. And so maybe us recording this podcast can help eliminate some of that, you know. So we'll start off just you telling us a little bit about yourself, um, you know, before we get into our talking points and, you know, how long have you spent in the Air Force and maybe some of the bases you've been at? All right. Sure. Thank you guys for having me on this. Uh, looking forward to this and uh, getting information out to the field. I'm Fred Taron. I've been in the Air Force Fire and Emergency Services since uh, real early in the 80s. So I guess it's about uh, 30, coming up on 39 years. Um, I did 21 years on active duty in fire, and then uh, I've been at uh, the Air Force Civil Engineering Service, uh, Civil Engineering Center for uh, 17, almost 18 years now, working in the Fire and Emergency Services uh, Division. And um, I guess uh, multiple TDYs over the years, uh, on active duty, nine different. Um, stations. Uh, some of them obviously closed now, uh, but I did start out at Laughlin, uh, Bentwaters Woodbridge uh, in England, Grissom, Wright-Patterson, uh, McConnell, Tyndall Air Force Base, Thule Greenland. I did a stint as a recruiter as well. Um, so they tell me I can sell just about anything. I don't know about that one, but. Well, you are the vehicle acquisition guy, so. Perfect yeah. spot for you. Yeah. Um, and being at the, uh, originally was uh, AFCISA, the Air Force Civil Engineering Support Agency. And over the years, obviously, the one thing about the Air Force that is always constant is change. And uh, they've changed the name over the, you know, the years. And uh, so now it's the Air Force Civil Engineering Center. But I, I've worked in... Um, a lot of different things there. There isn't too many of the uh, areas at uh, AFCEC that I haven't worked in in fire. Um, and then currently doing uh, operations and fire truck program. I mean, my hands are in hazmat, confined space, incident command, um, you name it. Um, so there, there is, uh, I, I understand the history and um, why decisions were made over the years since I've been there. So that helps when you go forward and you look strategically. Yeah, certainly. You're involved in a lot and, you know, we hope to highlight a lot of that. I know we probably couldn't cover everything in just one episode, considering that you've been in 39 years and you've probably had your hands on just about everything. But we're going to try to hit some of the high interest items, I guess you could say. Um, out of all the places you've been, what was the what was your favorite? Um, I'd say probably Thule, Greenland. Um, obviously it's a one D position, but it's just, uh, it is probably the most unique place I, I think I've ever been to. Um, it, it's, it's extremely cold. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, they only have what, maybe, maybe 30 days 
of uh, temperatures above freezing. Um, but they say you, you're really only there for two days, one long day and one long night, because it's like 137 days of 12 midnight and 120 some days of 12 noon. So that's why they say you're only there for two days, you know? So, but no, I feel I like would, you're probably, I feel like you're probably the only guy that uh, would say that that was the favorite spot. I was, I was guessing you'd probably say Tyndall considering you're living in Panama city or somewhere warmer than Greenland. I, well, I grew up in Northern Michigan towards the upper peninsula. So I, uh, it's not like I want to stay in cold weather, but I make the most of it. And, um, you know, I'm not a, I enjoy the beach. Um, the, the heat is, uh, can be a little overwhelming with the humidity here, but, um, I, I make ends meet wherever I am, but from a perspective of someplace that is unique, that very few people ever get to go to, it was, uh, I, I would just say the views were the most impressive, um, of, of my career where I've been to in, in the world. So. Gotcha. Well, uh, if we could, let's get into a little bit of, you know, what you have your hands on in fire protection. I know a lot of our listeners are going to be interested, uh, including myself, in how vehicle acquisitions happen in the Air Force. So can you walk us through that process? Um, how are they designed? Um, how are they selected? And all that kind of stuff. Sure, sure. Um, I, I guess probably the first thing that people always want to know is how, how do we go about getting the funding, right? Um, and that is through the um, the Defense Authorization Act. There's a line item when when they say that they signed off the budget. Obviously, for the last many years, we've been under uh, continuing resolution. But um, we, we have uh, a funding stream there that's really, to be honest with you, the only thing that is funded in uh, Air Force Fire as far as what they call a PEC, right? And um Many years ago, they signed us up for $25 million. Um, obviously, we have to have more than that nowadays because of the recapitalization rate that we, we try to be at 20 years. But um, that, that comes through that funding stream, and, um, and that gets um, notified to the Lifecycle Management Center and then also to uh, the vehicle folks, Viscos, which you might be familiar with that's there in Langley. Uh, that's the headquarters for vehicles, and um, they notify us what what uh, was in that budget, and then um, we start working it from there. As far as they put together what I call the one to end list, which is a prioritization of uh, vehicles that had to be replaced, and it uh, just depends on how much money we get. Right? Um, as an example, if we were to get twenty five million, you can almost figure that you can get about two vehicles a million. So you're looking at somewhere between 48 and 52 trucks for about 25 million, okay? Now, are all those bought at one time in in one kind of big chunk or are they spaced out over time? So that, that's an interesting question. So when the, when the money is dropped and we get the list, right? Um, it's, it's bought with what they call 3080 money. That's the color of the money, right? Now, that money is three-year money, which means it has to be executed within three years. Otherwise, you lose it, okay? Versus uh, if you've ever heard of 3,400 money, that's something that has to be executed in that year that it's given to you. But we get 3080 money is what's given for buying any type of new vehicles. It doesn't have to be fire trucks. It could be bulldozers, police cars, you name it, right? Um so the reason I say it's three-year money is because the way the process works, we have to go through the Defense Logistics Agency, or DLA, and that's who puts the contracts out on the street for manufacturers to bid on, all right? So I'll try to make it quick. I'll just kind of walk you through it where the money is is dropped to the life cycle and 441st or Viscos, like I said, then they let me know. They give me the one to end list and a big old spreadsheet. And then I got to start going down that list. And if I was to say skip a vehicle, I have to give justification why. So an example might be the very first truck might be one that we bought two years ago. For whatever reason, it didn't get it, that replacement truck didn't come out of the system. 
but it still rose up to the top, right? So I say, hey, I already bought that truck two years ago, or I bought that truck three years ago, because I I have to keep track of all the registration numbers, right? And and then I tell them, I'm not buying it again. I already bought it once. So then I just start working down the list until I've used up all the money. Once I've used up all the money in that buy year, then I send it back to them and say, hey, here's the list. Here's what we're buying. And then they look it over and make sure they're all good with it. And then they come back to me and they say, go forward. That's when I contact the fire chiefs or the deputy fire chief, right? Depending on what the situation is at that base, whatever positions some might, the fire chief might be a vacant position. You know where I'm going? So I send them documents that it's the shipping paper and ordering options because every fire truck, the type of fire truck, we have, I think we're at about 14 types of fire trucks now. There's different kinds of ordering options that the department can choose. I know there's a ton of stuff out there in social media, right? And why do we get this on a truck? Why do we get that on the truck? Trust me, I save all my emails from the department because somebody ordered it, all right? Fred Taran doesn't order stuff on the trucks, certain things, okay? So they, the fire department fills that out. They send that back to me. And, and as an example, say we're buying 10 P19s, right? I got to package all those 10 from the different bases into one like big PDF. And then I send that off to the Life Cycle Management Center. Then it's up to them to go through their model of packaging it to give it to DLA. Then DLA puts it out on the street for bid. And then the manufacturers that want to bid on it that are in the that are certified in the DLA system bids on that contract. Okay. And it's the same if we're buying 10 P19s and five P23s and three quints and seven aerials, the packages go out as a group out on the street to DLA, right? So I imagine the designs are are relatively similar when you say you can piece together what you want that's probably larger compartment size here or are we talking like i can get a side mounted pump yes. if i wanted to or a mid mounted pump if i wanted to and yes yeah, so when, far as you can decide that yeah so when you look at uh, some of the options like um what you just brought up on a p22 or p24 right uh, you know do you want a, a top mounted pump or do you want a side mounted pump do you want calves or no calves? Like on the hazmat trucks, do you want a cascade system or no cascade system? You know, on some of them, do you want a four by four? Do you want a four by two? It just depends on what your authorization is and if you want to change that authorization, right? Now, there's probably limits to that, right? So if if I'm reading through, you know, X Engineering Magazine and I see this one that looks really cool and I'm like, hey, boss, I want this truck. Um, they can't probably come to you and say, I want this custom off the, sh- you know, shelf, you know, brand truck that we're not buying, right? Like a clean cab truck. They have those clean cab trucks out there. Yeah. They probably want to stick within certain companies or certain types, right? I mean. So you guys are raising a, a, a few different questions there. So in the DLA system, the manufacturers that are in there, your Rosenbauer's, your Oshkosh, they have to be certified in the DLA system. And that certification is good for five years. And then they have to recertify. And that certification process, it, it's kind of like um, um, like getting accredited, right? They have to submit all kinds of documents on, on all their production processes that they meet this, this, and this, right? And, and then they get certified. And so, no, you know, I'll be honest with you. There's about 55 to 56 different fire truck manufacturers just in the United States, but not all of them are in the DLA system because they might not match up with the certifications that they have to have. So a lot of times you're just looking at the bigger ones, the Oshkoshes, the Pierce, you know, the, the E1s, the Rosenbauers, things like that, right? Um, the, the other uh, point that you um, brought up with, um, and you're going to have to refresh my memory, that you seen cab maybe? Yeah, so the clean cab. So we, we've started down that path with clean cab because we did the idle reduction technology many years ago, reducing the fossil footprints. Um, we've um, we also went with the Ward diesel uh, on all fire trucks starting in 2018. The 2018 buy 
and people say, yeah, but that's just for the fire station. That's not true. The war diesel system can be engaged when you're out at the incident scene, which you sometimes are generating even more fossil fuels out there. Because a lot of times, if you guys think about it, you're bringing patients by your truck or you're staging them around your vehicles and things like that, right? You can engage that system there, which is going to reduce your fossil footprint that you're putting at the scene. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So we're, we're doing things like that. Now, uh, one thing that with the clean cab is that it's going to take up a lot of compa- uh, compartment space now because you cannot put nothing in the cab because then it won't be clean. The, the, you guys follow where I'm going? Yes, sir. So your, yep. your air packs, your, you guys are putting, if you're putting lights or EMS yeah. equipment or your, yeah. anything. Time to, time to really take a hard look at the truck and say, okay, what's important and what's not, you know? Right, right. And so there's designs out there, but I will tell you this, what, what would help us because, and that's your point I was going to get to is we buy trucks to the NFPA standard because it's performance-based, right? And I know you talked about if, if you were looking at a magazine and you saw this really cool fire truck, it's nice and shiny, it's got all the latest toys on it, right? Well, we can't call out specific vendors. If you look at a fire truck, you got about, depending on the type of truck, you might have up to 200 different vendors on that truck. Yeah, on all four sides of it, it might say Pierce. But internally, it, it's like fantasy football. They they pick their vendors that they want to put on their truck, right? So, you know, you, if if you, in the system that we use in the garment, you can't call out a specific vendor when you're specking out a fire truck. Now, maybe in the, the public, you can, but not in the federal mm-hmm. government. Yeah, it's very similar to like structural ensemble. They walked us through our, that process yep. when we went we went through AFIT, and it's like somebody else is the vendor for gloves and the different vendor for the helmet and for the boots and you know obviously the turnout coat and turnout pants. Right. So you couldn't say like I want a Whalen five hundred on every one of my trucks because now you're calling out a specific vendor, and now you could end up having a protest against you by yeah. other. Other ones that can't get, say, the Wayland products, or they can't get the bet, they can't get the same discount. So, are, are there any changes on the horizon with apparatus? I mean, it, we talked a little bit about the the clean cab uh, shifting and the uh, reducing the carbon footprint on the trucks and stuff. Are there any major changes? Ultra high pressure, anything else beyond that? The yeah, ultra high pressure is starting to grow a little bit on the structural side. Now, there there is some companies out there that are actually doing uh, retrofits onto that side of firefighting with uh, ultra high pressure. Uh, obviously the, the clean cab is probably the biggest because of health and safety for firefighters. Um, and you, you're gonna see that. I, I guess the other thing that you're gonna see a, a, a big change with on with fire trucks is with the NFPA standards. And that's where they are now restructuring the standards and they're combining some of them all into one. So an example is on, on for procurement of fire trucks, they're gonna combine NFPA 414, 1901, and 1906 all into one standard. And I believe it's gonna be, not 100% sure, but I believe it's gonna be called NFPA 1900. And it's, um, it's just the way the NFPA uh, is going down that path and they're doing it with all other kind of standards as well. Um, whether it be in the pro qual series or, or on the rescue side, things like that, where they're going to now take and merge standards that are the same into one standard. So that that's probably the biggest thing uh, that I see outside of um the clean cab because that's um, that that's driving a lot of manufacturers to relook at uh, fire trucks and where things are stored and put and stuff like that. Right. Right. Yeah. Talking a little bit about ultra high pressure, you mentioned that's going on in the structural apparatus, and it already is. Um, you know, I, I've I've touched a truck that has ultra high pressure. Why that technology? Um, from you know, we get a lot of people 
I don't know, not us on the podcast, but uh, you see it maybe on social media and other places or within the fire department. Um, what is the benefit to ultra pressure uh, compared to, you know, your traditional way of putting water on fire? Well, I, the, the big thing is you're going to use less water. So you're going to be able to sustain operations longer, right? To me, that's, mm-hmm. that's the biggest um, benefit that you see with it, right? And with anything, it, it doesn't matter what it is in fire. With anything that you see where there's change, there's always going to be some pushback, right? And, yeah, we hate change and we hate right. the way things are. Uh, and a lot of times, I mean, fire service has always kind of been this way, right? That if that if uh, somebody's name isn't on it or they didn't invent it, then it might not be very good. That That's just the way it works mm-hmm. in the firehouse. It doesn't matter if it was 50 years ago or if it's today, right? You, 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 it's always yeah. been that way in the fire service. So when it comes to change, sometimes we can be very stoic because it's the unknown, right? And, and the big thing is mm-hmm. being able to understand the technology and how it works. So do due diligence with it and train on it and, and get used to it, right? Absolutely. Now, have we seen out in the field, I mean, you probably have a a higher level perspective than we do um, at our individual basis. Have we seen out in the field people putting it into practice and it actually responding as expected versus kind of a laboratory training setting to where people are using it on actual emergencies and reporting back, hey, this stuff works? Yeah, I, I, I get it all the time from people that said, hey, I was a doubter at first, but I've been out using it and now I, I, I understand it, you know. Um, it actually, that technology put the first F-35 fire out. It was a, a, a P-34 at Eglin. And right after they did, the fire chief was calling me. He said, I just want to let you know, they put this F-35 out that was on fire. He said, because it got there quicker than the other trucks. You mean the rapid intervention vehicle got yes. there rapidly? Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm just messing with you. Um, so, yeah, as, as this thing gets utilize people train on it more understand it you know people say hey it doesn't do no good into the wind well normal streams don't do that great into the wind either right depending on the wind so is it affected by some winds yes because obviously the droplets are a little smaller they're going to be a little more effective but we you know last time i checked we weren't taught to fight fire into the wind i mean not not to our effective extent right so, um, but I, I do, I do see it, uh, increasing more in the fire service, uh, because we are fielding calls on the, uh, FAA side from the airports. And I know the Navy is, uh, if I'm not mistaken, they're starting to put it on their structural pumpers because I go to the manufacturers and when I go to inspect our trucks, you know, I, I'll see one of the other services trucks there and uh, the manufacturer will tell me that, hey, the Navy's putting this on their truck now, structural side. So it, it's uh, it's growing. Um, so we will see what the future holds, right? Absolutely. Yes, sir. So moving on from vehicles, here you're also plugged into the EMS program for Air Force Fire and Emergency Services. Uh, we spoke a little bit with Chief Morris and Chief Wagner about it on their episodes, but just curious what what your role in EMS is, and uh, if you have any updates or information you'd like to share. Sure. So I'm I'm the EMS program manager. So I'm kind of equivalent to uh, what they call a lead licensing agent for the state. So for the Air Force, uh, we've agreed to follow the national registry for the different uh, certification levels and licensing. And um, so I'm equivalent to a state office. So say the state of uh, Virginia or the state of Texas or anything like that, right? So the the program management side would uh, fall under us at AFCEC and uh, I'm the program manager. And then we also have Mr. John Hearn who works with me uh, on uh, dealing with anything on the EMS side of the house, okay? Um, and um, so we're we're the execution arm of things. 
So if there's anything that uh, if a department is going to teach a initial EMR course or initial, initial EMT course or recertification, maybe a refresher or making folks EMT instructors, um, that all that all falls under uh, us at AFCEC and, and me as a program manager. Any insight into plugging EMT into tech school? Have you had conversations about that? Oh, yeah. So just, just let you guys know. So a couple of years ago, when Chief Wagner first took over, we, we met out at uh, Nellis Air Force Base with the Surgeon General's office because there is some some movement in uh, the DOD world where there's a new organization, uh, Defense Health Agency, DHA, that's taking over, is supposed to be in the process of taking over pre-hospital or, or hospital operations, right? And they've basically made the statement that uh, pre-hospital EMS response would be a fire-based response. So we met out there with them, and I, I think that's when he got his feet wet with the uh, the EMS process. And there, there was some agreements that were made during that week in meetings. And um, so we've been um, moving forward with this program since then. And one of the subjects was um, teaching EMT at the schoolhouse. One thing that you have to be aware of that has to be fixed um, is in the Air Force, in the AETC world, you can only have one tech school for a particular training area. And right now, EMT is taught in San Antonio on the Surgeon General side. So we would, we would have to be able to crack that nut, per se, to be able to teach it at the, um, the DOD Fire Academy. Or else send our students to two different tech schools in order to get certified. That's probably the opposite side of that coin, yeah. Just like special operators go to, you know, four or five different places. Yes. Each branch is on the special forces side. Each each branch of service has unique things like diving or, you know, parachuting, things like that. Right. So, yes, you're, you're absolutely right. Which by stating that you, you've just identified that there's going to be some logistics, some resources, some funding. Money. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And. And maybe some people out in the field don't realize that all that has to take place behind the scenes before you can move forward, right? So the the thing with the schoolhouse that we're moving towards is it was agreed upon uh, around all the service components is to get to the National Registry EMR. Uh, And then eventually on the Air Force side, you know, get to EMT. Um, If I was a betting person, and I try never to bet, I, I'm going to say it's going to be a ways down the road. Uh, it's, it's not going to happen overnight. It's, it's not where you can pull out that easy button and hit it. Um, it. It's just not that easy. There's just a lot of things that have to happen first in agreements. Um, like I said, with AETC, right, for one. Um, the other thing is, yeah. You got to remember now, if, you, if you're going to put them through the medical piece of it, it's probably going to be on the front end, right? And that test isn't easy on the EMT side, right? And if you fail, then what do you do with them? Yeah, Jeff and Cody on our episode that we covered at a tech school, they're both instructors at tech school. They mentioned that EMR is the, it's historically the hardest thing that they do in tech school. And there's a, there's a lot of failures and they get a lot of opportunities to pass it. But ever since they transitioned to the National Registry, EMR, it's pretty difficult. So, you know, now if you plug an EMT, you know, what, what is the attrition rate going to look like for firefighters? In Texas? Yeah. And, and I, and I don't think they're a hundred percent up to national registry yet. I know they're standing up a, a testing center with Pearson view because, you know, that's, mm. um, that, that has to take place. Right? And that has to, obviously the career field manager is, uh, who handles uh, with the, uh, the DOD fire Academy. Um, so it'll be, it'll be, um, him working with the DOD fire Academy. And then obviously our office, because we're the, we're what you would call the state of the air force as the lead licensing agent. So we'll have to work through those steps of when they get that testing center up and, um, things like that. Right. Because uh, if there's any yeah. kind of audits mm-hmm. or investigations, then the national registry is going to come to us for us to execute that. So fire, if fire protection took over emergency medical services, 
would there be any reason for four ends or medical technicians in the Air Force to receive their National Registry EMT? You know, in I guess in a perfect world, that teaching could somehow transition to Goodfellow and four ends wouldn't have to, to do it anymore so that it wouldn't be in two places in AATC. Well, I think they still have to maintain it on their their core skill set based on their work in the MTFs and um, stuff like that. I, I don't want to go too much into on their side. Yeah. yeah, I'm getting into the weeds a little bit. I guess I'm just thinking out loud that, uh, you know, if they're not doing anything emergency related, I get that they have emergency departments. But, you know, if they're not doing anything else emergency related, why would they have to? participate in an EMT or get registered as EMTs. Yeah. I, so, again, I'm thinking out loud. I don't know enough about it, but yeah. I mean, there's some things I know, but I probably don't need to say That's because right. it's not in my, not my avenue to, to speak on uh, about them. Right. But you, you know, they have their clinical side and then you have the response mm-hmm. side and um, mm-hmm. you, you know, and, and every base can be a little different on how they approach that with what services they offer at an MTF. Um, so right. I'm, you know, maybe they won't have as big a footprint, uh, once this is rolled out in the air force, I, I don't know. Right. And it might come down to where they say, offer them if they'd like to cross train into fire, you know, if to stay, you know, in the air force or whatever, I, I don't know. I mean, there's probably tons of possibilities out there going forward, but this is still in the, uh, the crawl phase when it comes to uh, DHA and, and rolling this all out, because, it, it doesn't matter what branch of service you're in, the medical's going under DHA. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like a lot of red tape to navigate, and hopefully Ben and I see it in our career. But and hopefully we'll, we don't get we'll caught in the middle of the the crap show that'll you know inevitably happen as transition occurs, and who's mm-hmm. doing training and and yeah, we could be leading through the transition, you know. Yeah. Potentially, you, you could. I mean, there, there's going to be a lot of challenges when, when you know, it's a big elephant when you're talking about mm-hmm. doing it across DOD as a, as one big agency at DHA, and and then establishing people that can oversee at the service components level, right? So, um, well, as long as we're getting, I think the the right order of operation of resources and then requirements, and not the other way around, where we have requirements that we're trying to duct tape and bailing wire together. Uh, as far as, okay, well, you need to have 15 EMTs per station or, or X or, or, you know, whatever the, the case yeah, Don't put be. the cart before the horse. Yeah. So, so rolling out in the right order, I think would, would make everyone feel really comfortable with it versus, you know, you know, requirements, then resources, and then each base does their own thing. And I think that's where a lot of people's uneasiness about it comes from is just kind of being unsure about what the resources are going to look like at the end. Yeah. Well, and I, I'm along that line, too, because when you start looking at stuff um, and then they say, hey, we don't have the money, just look at what we're doing with today with continuing resolution and, and things like that. Right. And budgeting and all that. And they say, hey, we just don't have the funds now. So then you're like, well, what are we going to do? Right. But they say you still got to make the, the job work. So uh, we, we shall see. We shall see. Well, Fred, uh, we appreciate your work thus far and, you know, moving EMS forward, everything that you've done. I know that, you you know, you're probably not going to, I don't know how long you plan on sticking around, but you may not stick around to see the, to see it come to fruition. But we appreciate the work that you've done thus far, because I think me personally, this is Matt speaking, that uh, EMS in the fire department makes the most sense, considering our civilian counterparts do that. Uh, We're in the business of providing emergency service to communities. Um, you know, it just makes sense to be under our roof, but you know, that's me talking again. So we'd well, like to transition to SCBA if that works for you. Sure. Sure. Um, you know, we know that we're, you know, we've had our MSAs for what well, going on just over a decade. If I, if my memory serves me right. And I understand we're transitioning to a new one. I don't know if you can fill us in on, uh, what's going on there and what we can expect. Yeah. So the, when we bought MSA, we started implementing it out, out into the field in uh, 08. And um, the, the big push, obviously, is what expires is the cylinders. They have a 15-year, right? And that's based from Department of Transportation. And you can't, you can't get waivers. I, I don't care what anybody says. They're not going to waiver that, right? So 
we started back in 2016. And the reason why is because we kind of worked backwards from 23, knowing that we needed to get funding. Uh, we needed to get the process in place. We needed to get the uh, request for proposal or what they refer to as RFP out there. Uh, because every time we bought air packs, it's ended up in court because it's big money. And anytime you have a large buy, somebody that don't get the award is not going to be happy. Right. And so it's, um, and that's why we started working backwards from 23, thinking that we had to lay in a year because when we went from Inner Sparrow to MSA, it was in court for a year. Those that don't know that. And, um, so we started 2016, we started a working group and uh, we go through the Life Cycle Center uh, through what they call the Human Services and Sustainment Office. And then there's two contracting offices also there at Robbins Air Force Base. And uh, we've been working with them. And I can tell you that uh, on June 13th, we released the RFP and that basically that it put our uh, our PD or spec, they call it purchase description, out on the street uh, for vendors to uh, bid on it. Now, one of the requirements that we put in there is that whoever bid on it, their air packs had to be certified and approved through NIOSH and the NFPA 2018 standard. So somebody just couldn't say that they meet the 2018 standard. They have to be certified and approved through NIOSH and all those testing processes for uh, for them to be able to bid on this contract. And then they have to have the J-Fire capability built in. That's am, I, on, am I getting ahead of myself? Yeah, that's on top of that. Now, one difference you'll probably see with this buy is we're going with the commercial pack, you know, uh, with the um, civilian mask and everything like that. And then we'll have a second mask for the military firefighter. So that'll be a separate thing that we'll only buy for the military firefighter, whether it be active duty reserve or guard. Logistics guys are excited to hear that they got twice as many masks to worry about now. <laughs> yeah, well, or SCBA yeah, the, the thing last time was the mask was too heavy. It was cumbersome, the whole nine yards. Right? It is. So it is, yeah. uh, the, the working group that was formed. Um, so people understand, too, is we're just not buying fire uh, self-contained breathing apparatus just for fire. Uh, I'm the program manager for the SCBA and there's other functional communities. You got the aircraft maintenance that deal with hydrazine. You got the medical side and you also have our other CE functionals of EOD and EM. So there's five total functional communities that we're working with in this program to for procurement. And we'll all use the same type, right? We're not going to go fire. We'll use one and, and EOD will use another. The only thing different with fire would be the J fire mask. If I'm understanding. Yes, sir. Right. Yes, sir. Okay. Yep. They're all going to get the commercial. Uh, and then fire is, is uh, going to have the additional. Now you said the bidding opened up in June. H have we, uh, you know, have we come to a point where we, we know who we're selecting or no, we, is that going to be announced got, soon? We or? still got many steps to go. So the RFP okay. was released. And in that RFP, just, just to kind of give you some idea, in that RFP, it was, I believe it's 23 or 24 PDF documents that make that up. And some of them are as much as 123 pages long. Right. So this is awesome. a massive, uh, at the end of the day, we're, we're looking at around with the different functional communities of about 14,000 SCBAs. And we're looking at, we're estimating about a $109 million contract. That's just an estimate. Oh, yeah. I, I could be high or low. Cause the other thing that, that the fire wanted on this buy was the SAR kit. Because in the past, we've never really addressed that. The fire departments had to get that on their own. But with the way the funding works nowadays, a lot of the fire guys in the working group said, hey, can we get that in the buy as well? So we're looking at 200 plus uh, SAR kits. And when I say that, you know, you're looking at the, you know, the manifolds, the cart, the, you know, four, uh, 300, the hose, the uh, escape bottle, escape bottles. I mean, I think there's four of them. Um, so um, 
that's been added in here as well, okay? So we did reduce the numbers on the fire side of our STBAs because we did a new base of issue that's in the allowance standard a couple of years ago, and we based it on the, the vehicle set versus uh, in the past, it was always like a firefighter got one, and if he was military, he got another one, and then if, you know, then they maybe threw in the option that the fire chief just wanted an extra 50, you know what I'm saying? So. Yeah, it, we we really looked hard at the base of issue this time, and um, and we reduced some of our numbers here because the last buy we were a little over seventeen thousand air packs that we ended up procuring, wow. and we didn't buy last time um, for the aircraft maintenance folks. Um, so, um, you know, we've we've uh, it's been in the works, and it's kind of good now to see the. Uh, RFP out there on the street. Uh, with that though, there's we're getting questions every day, um, and obviously, um, what's going on in the world with COVID nineteen throwing us a little curveball. Because once once the proposals are submitted back to us, then our next step is to go out to four different locations that's already been picked by the functional communities to do evaluations of the air packs that's been submitted. Okay, and those locations are uh, Isleson in Alaska. Uh, we're going to get cold weather tests in there as well as the aircraft maintenance wanted it done there. And then Beale Air Force Base, uh, Minot, and uh, the Colorado Springs area because we'll get multiple bases in the Colorado Springs area. So those are what of the feeling that Chief Smith lobbied to have you guys come to Beale. No, <laughs> he, he, that was uh, that was uh, from the aircraft maintenance side. I got you. Sorry, Chief Smith. I didn't mean it. Yeah. He's probably going to be happy we're coming there, but. uh, Yeah, I'm sure. um, I I think actually we're using uh, like the training officers and any of their functional community leads at those bases as our POCs. Um, One of the things that's hurting us is obviously COVID-19 because of restrictions, restriction of movement, things like that. So um, as soon as uh, we get the, uh, proposals back uh then we're going to start looking at scheduling to go to these uh, installations and do the evaluations um and and see what what happens you know now does this upcoming purchase also take care of all of our utcs our downrange locations um all of those kind of contingency operations as well yes sir yeah this is air force enterprise wide by so roger that Speaking of, uh, you know, UTCs and, and deployments and stuff, uh, I have a feeling this next topic will tie into that a little bit. Uh, in, the, in the read ahead documents, you know, you mentioned something about an equipment working group. I don't personally know anything about it. Um, so I'd love for you to tell, tell us about that, what your role is with that. It seems like you're part of every working group in the Air Force. Um, no. But what's this one about? No, I, I'm not part of every working group in the airports. I got a few, but so that we got to pick on you, you know, yeah, a little bit. I know. Um, so the equipment working group actually came out of the strategic uh, in it, the planning initiative that they, um, that they put together a few years ago. And um, one of the strategic items was to uh, establish a vehicle working group. And then out of that, uh, they were seeing how that group was going. So then they said equipment, and it just kind of stuck with me because of operations. So that's kind of how I, I picked up on that. So I, I want to say about a month ago, uh, they asked me to uh, start forming a working group to uh, look at technology and and other things like that, you know, going forward strategically uh, for the fire service. So, uh, so far, we've got, um, I want to say about 15 to 20 folks that have uh, signed up to be part of the working groups uh, or part of the equipment working group anyways. And uh, I'm just giving a couple more weeks for the commands to do their due diligence to going out and searching for uh, folks that want to be part of a working group. Um, And uh, and then we'll, we'll start having uh, monthly meetings and then uh, periodically report to the, uh, Air Force Fire Chief and the fire panel on uh, any recommendations or, or course of actions from uh, the equipment working group. So, 
So I understand there's a, uh, well, I know that there's a place in Grissom where, where all of this stuff is kept. Does this working group have anything to do with that? Or, or do you have your hand in that warehouse? Yeah. Uh, Grissom has got some warehouses that we keep equipment. Like you talked a little bit about UTCs. Kevin Marlock uh, handles uh, UTCs on that part. And, uh, He's, he's got some of that stuff there when they did some reorganization a few years ago. But we actually started even before that many years ago. Uh, we would we would centrally buy items and store them there like hazmat suits. And then we would let the installations know, hey, we were able to secure, I don't know, say a million dollars. And we went out and bought thousands of hazmat suits, level A or level B. And if there's any bases that need any, you know, have them contact me. And, and that's continued over the years. Uh, there's some uh, mon- uh, monitors there, some uh, nozzles. Um, we, we still have some hazmat suits there. Uh, we did a big uh, central buy for extrication equipment a couple of years ago now, yeah? We, we did a big buy for it, yeah. We had 75 installations contact us for uh, the hydraulics. And... Um, so, and what we ended up doing is we knew that some bases wouldn't, what I call, turn in their homework, right? And uh, we, could we put a deadline, 30 days, let us know who wants it, right? And you're just going to have some out there. You know, you guys were in school one day. You probably didn't always turn your homework in when you're supposed to. Yep. So we knew, we knew that would happen. So we bought an extra 10 hydraulic kits, right? And uh, the original 75 got their stuff and... Wouldn't you know it, when those bases start getting their stuff, then... Hey, I want mine. Yeah, you know, it's like working in a 911 center, right? Phone's just ringing off the hook, email's coming in. Where's mine at? When do I get mine? I'm pretty sure we ordered one. Uh, oh, you didn't send that. Yeah, you didn't yeah, send me that email. Yeah, it did come in. The, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. yeah, the post office didn't deliver it. So yeah. those, those were gone. Those 10 extra that we ordered at Grissom were gone within seven days. Longer than I would have thought. I would have thought maybe three. <laughs> yeah, they just, well, it, some of it took me time to get the addresses and the information yeah. from them and, and, uh, and track that, man, these, these went quick. So, and, and we've looked at doing it again. Um, the, the problem is we just haven't been able to secure because it's, when we do a, a buy like that, as I stated before in the fire trucks, we don't get any other money only for fire trucks. So this is all unfunded. So we go in at the at the first of the year and we put in for some unfunded and and sometimes we're successful and sometimes we're not. Right. Uh, so what's the the end goal of the equipment working group then? Is it to standardize across the fleet or is it to save money on overhead by buying in bulk? I mean, or all of the above or is there something else that we're missing? Well, I, I think it's to look at technology and, and to look at um, what's out there that's could make more effective and efficient operations, right? Like maybe the group wants to look at chainsaws or K-12s, right? What, what's the latest technology out there that'll make it even better for us? It could be like, if this group was formed a few years ago, it could have been like, hey, what about hydraulics? Why carry all these hydraulic hoses around when we can use batteries and, and have more of an effective operation, right? So I, the, the goal that they've told me, and this is from uh, Chief Wagner and the fire panel from the strategic initiative, is to look at technology and where things are going in the future and to see if we can stay ahead of the game, right? Absolutely. Yeah, we had a guest a few episodes ago, Whit, Whit Dotson. Um, he was big into some, some hose and, and nozzle advancements and Talked a lot yeah. about the technology and the science behind it, man. It He'd like make a, a great guy. member for your working group. So, Wit, so. I know you're listening. <laughs> He's, you know, it was it was released 30 minutes ago, and and Wit is listening to it right now. I guarantee it. But yeah. hop on this working group, man. Email the man. So, yeah, no, I mean um, that's and so that's kind of the 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 crux of the working group um, to uh, to try to you know look at things in the future and and uh, make fire and emergency services in the Air Force better, right? Yes, sir. So talking a little bit about NFPA committees, you mentioned that you're on a, a few of those. How many are you on? You know, what's your role? Um, so, or are you on one? No, well, well, I'm, I'm on three 
I just got put on a new one, um, but I'm on the the 472 NFPA 472 the hazmat, and on that one you have um, 1072, you have 473, which is the EMS, you have 475, which is uh, if somebody was to start out from scratch building up a hazmat program in a department, um, so that makes up what I call the hazmat NFPA standards, and then I'm also on the NFPA 1500. Occupational safety and health. And then that one, you have 1500, you got 1521, which is safety officer, you got 1561 ICS, you got 1585, uh, 1581, which is infectious disease, 1582, which is your physicals, medical, 1583, which is firefighter fitness, and then 1584 rehab. Uh, the brand new one I got put on what is uh, going to be 1585, contamination control. Um, now, and I stated earlier about how the NFPA is restructuring. Um, so on the 472, that, that is the very first committee, the NFPA uh, started combining standards. And on that one, they, they're combining 472, 473, and 1072, and it's going to become NFPA standard 470. And I've been on that one since 2004, so 16 years I've been on that one. On NFPA 1500, I've been on that one since 2005, and they are combining, uh, they are going to pull, right now the talk is, is that they're going to pull into the new contamination control one, 1585, they're going to pull 1581, and possibly 1582 into that, right? Um, so three, I guess you'd say three total committees for NFPA with a grand total of, I don't know, that's probably around 10 to 12 different standards. Now, do you sit on these in, in your personal capacity or in your role as an Air Force FES liaison or member? No, I, I, I'm on these uh, for the Air Force. Okay. So I, I represent the Air Force, and a lot of times the other services uh, will uh, contact me about information on it as well. So I'm, um, I'm on what they call the technical committees for these standards, and the technical committees are the, uh, uh, the principal consensus uh, body that's responsible for uh, writing those line items that are no standards and updating them, whether it be through revisions from say public comment or committee comment uh, or lessons learned based on incidents. Um, and so, and the technical committee reports to the next level would be the correlation committee. And then that reports to the bot, the, the governing body of the NFPA when it comes time to um you know, when it's, if there's any issues with any of the changes that a standard's changing to, because on every NFPA standard, most of them change every five years. It used to be somewhere three, somewhere four, but they've changed it now to where it's just five years. If one changes before the five-year mark, it's because of a short cycle, because of like what they're doing now, where they're combining standards, you know, two or three or four into one, and they might have to change uh, one of the standards where it was only out for a couple years, but to be able to get it into the new one, they got a sh what, what they call a short cycle, it right. Um, and and the big the big draw to have the Air Force involved in this, um, I would guess, is because we're we're heavily a recipient of the rules, right? I mean, we're we're we bind ourselves to the NFPA, and so it's important for us to have a voice in that product. Yes, because we've signed up to incorporate the NFPA standards. And then if we if there's line items in them that we just can't, then, you know, we would do the uh, technical invitation guide that it takes. Um, if there's just something because of us being in the military or wherever, right, that we just can't come to all of them, right? Or that the Air Force has, say, because you got to remember the NFPA standards are minimum consensus, consensus standards, right? We might go above that based on, uh, and, and, you know, uh, NAFI or, or a, a DODI, something along that line, right? So as a member of a NFPA committee, 
I'm trying to understand, well, obviously I've never been on a committee, so I don't understand what goes on there, but is it something when, when changes are initiated, do we kind of go around the table? Like, all right, what do we need to fix? You know, how, how does the change happen? So a couple different ways. So, um, as I stated before, like on the fire trucks, uh, right now they're combining 414, 1901 and 1906. So they're pulling them into a document. And when they're going to do that, they open it up for comments. And the first draft is where the committee gets together and they start reviewing public comments. So you say both of you could go on to the NFPA site to any one of the standards. And obviously you guys know how to get in there um, and get into a standard itself. And you can make public comment on that line item. All right. And then when that committee gets together for that um, between the first draft or say the second draft, then they have to adjudicate the public's comments. They either have to accept them or they can accept them in part with some edits or they can reject them. Okay. And if the, if say they reject them or they accept them in part with some changes, you can follow that uh, on, on the uh, NFPA under that particular standard when it's in that review process. So another example is we have that vehicle working group and a lot of the guys that are on that group, guys and girls are on that group say, Hey, we want clean cab. We want you to buy everything now, clean cab. And I said, well, it don't exactly work that way. We've been trying to get there, but we need the NFPA standards to change too. That will help us because we buy to the NFPA procurement standard, the design standard, right? So if they make changes in that, then that will drive to where I can tell the life cycle folks, we have to change some of our specs because we got to incorporate some of this clean cab design stuff. Does that make sense? Yep. So tell tell those working group members to hop on the NFPA right. website and everybody at one time. And, 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 I make say, and that's just where I say all the time. If, if, if you want to make a change, you want to make a difference in this world, go up there and submit public comment. That's how you make a difference in the fire service. If you, if, you know, there's a lot of great ideas out there on social media. Take those great ideas that you're typing up on social media and go to the NFPA standards and get them under public comments and, and go from there, right? Absolutely. They don't always because people get a little shy, right? And they, and they I don't know how. Well, not not on Facebook. They don't get shy. <laughs> no, of course. No, no. Well, put your money where your mouth is, you know, like get well, on there, right. and submit, submit it. And if they don't accept it, then they don't accept it. But exactly. give them a chance to say no. Exactly. And it, and, and it's, and, it doesn't cost you anything. So, you know, um, go, go submit the comments, but that that's just kind of one example. I tell that vehicle working group now is the time because it's open for public comment, whatever you don't like in the document or something that you've seen out there that another department has bought and it, and it makes sense for clean cab. And there's a line item in that NFPA standard that you can tweak that would lead you more towards gaining that clean cab. Go for it. That, that's what the process is there for. The NFPA is a great, great organization, and it makes a big difference. And that's why I say if, if um, you want to be a leader, um, jump on that and, and go make the comments. I, From a committee perspective, I know I'll have the opportunity if I have comments to make when the committee gets together. Because, like I said, we review the public comments, and then the committee gets to make some comments, too. So if there's some things in the Air Force or if there's some things that I see that they want to change that's going to affect us with, say, money, uh, resources, or, or you know, uh, manpower, things like that, then I, I might have to, uh, you know, make make comments on our our side so that it it, it does we don't get railroaded on requirements in there, right? I'll give an example. Uh, New York City is on every one of the committees that I'm on. If you incorporate say one hour of new training into say uh, like NFPA 472, it's going to cost them over $10 million just based on the number of firefighters they have. So, you know, 
when it comes to the, the technical committee, there, that's just an example of something that somebody that's on the committee has the responsibility to consider for who they're representing. And I, and I will tell you, you have on any of these committees, only one third of the committee can be from the fire service. Hmm. So that's if you were taking votes, if you were taking votes and there's normally, it, it usually maxes out at either 33 or 35 committee members. If you think about it, uh, fire only gets one third of the votes. So two thirds comes from, say, other industry, um, uh, maybe um, private private entities, um, things like that. So they two thirds can easily outvote fire in any kind of committee. Well, the upside is if you don't like something that's in the NFPA, we can just write a TIG, right? That's true, but you got to have the right justification, right? Right, I got it. Yeah, that was kind of, that, was kind of joking. But I, I would like to invite either one of you two down when the next time we do a TIG, um, so that you guys can feel the pain of going through that process because it's not always yeah. easy. Yeah, I'll take a trip. Yeah, I'd Let's love do it. to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, Panama City's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, Fred, it's been a uh, great talking to you about all these committees and programs you're on. Um, what else do you got in your mind? We got a few minutes before we need to wrap up. So just want to turn the floor over to you and see if there's anything else that we've missed. Yeah. If you guys don't mind, I got a few things. Hopefully I can, I can uh, put forward. Uh, I, I do want to say on the EMS side, uh, our, our, when you go up to the fire and emergency services, SharePoint site, we, we got an EMS tab. It's currently kind of down because we're working on uploading a lot of stuff on there, like a calendar. So anybody could go on there into that calendar and see when we're teaching EMT instructor courses or, or things like that. So that 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 SharePoint site should be up and running hopefully in the next couple of weeks. And I I think you guys out in the field, um, guys and girls, everybody's really going to like it. It's going to have a ton of information on it, right? Also under the EMS, we're going under a protocol review right now. So hopefully in 2021, you're going to see new EMS protocols up there. And we did increase uh, some level uh, scope of practices on both the EMR and the EMT levels. Um, on the fire, fire truck side, the one thing I'd like to get out there that we've ran into a little bit of an issue lately with fire trucks is that when a new fire truck comes to your base, please don't touch that thing until you've had training on it. We've had some trucks that's been uh, damaged, uh, fire pumps damaged, uh, trucks, uh, different uh, components on the truck that, uh, you know, that's gotten damaged uh, before the training could even be conducted. So please, please wait until you've been trained on the truck because uh, there is a lot of new technology on it. And if you're not 100% sure how it works, just kind of wait till the manufacturer comes in there and does training. I know we've We've run into a few issues because of COVID-19 and get manufacturers altered to train, depending on where you are in the world. But trust me, if it can be worked out, uh, please wait until they get there, okay? Um, we were looking at buying some hazmat suits on a buy. I, I don't know exactly where it's at, uh, but we're buying level A and level B suits. I don't know where it's at in the process, but uh, once they uh, are procured in that Grissom, we'll be sending an email out. And uh, we we did a pretty good buy on this one as well. So uh, we'll, that'll be available. And obviously, we wanted to do it on the level B side because of what's going on in the world to help the fire department's out there that might be low on those kind of uh, Tyvek suits, right? And uh, the other thing, I guess, uh, for those that are wanting to set up their national registry account at their department, uh, remember, there's two different uh, sides of the National Registry. There's the side where you teach initial courses. That's the program account. And then there's the side where you do recertifications, and that's the agency account. And uh, right now, we've got maybe 25% of the bases that have signed up for them. So you're going to need to do that to get through the National Registry if you're teaching. And um we're here to help you, both myself and John Hearn on the EMS side. So, um, and that's, those are the big, big things I, I wanted to say at the end to uh, make the field aware of. And uh, I appreciate you guys' time immensely, what you guys are doing with this. I think it's great. 
And uh, anytime you can communicate and, and tell it like it is, it, it helps uh, the fire service know what's going on, right? We appreciate it. Yeah, we appreciate your time and, you know, sharing all the those nuggets of information. You know, just another another way to get the message out, you know, beyond the WebEx seminars and emails and Facebook posts. And, you know, hopefully uh, a lot of people can consume this way. You know, you get it straight from the horse's mouth. So appreciate your time, Fred. Oh, thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fire Dog Podcast. You can find more content just like this regularly posted to our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash the Fire Dog Podcast. That's facebook.com forward slash the Fire D-A-W-G Podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, share this podcast with your friends and coworkers. This is Matt Wilson with co-host Ben Perry and guest Mr. Fred Tarrant. Until next time, stay safe.